I want to go to August 4th, 2020. So that August 4, 2020, it was the big shock. And my, my youngest daughter was there. We were having coffee. And uh, suddenly I hear... I hear it like very... And I recognized, I, I said, this is not, this is not, this is... Like I, I started panicking and she's like, oh my God, my mom, like she never saw me like that. She didn't, I said, call Pepe, call Pepe, call me up, call me up, call Pepe. I can't, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I couldn't do it. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go to that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. <laughs> Welcome to episode one of our series on food, conflict, and unity. In this series, we'll be exploring the life stories of culinary pioneers, those who seek to transform cuisine, preserve culture, and unite the global community. Who you were listening to at the top of the episode was Barbara Massad, whose unique love of food transformed her from small village girl to a citizen of the world, renowned author, and anti-war activist. Between the Lebanese Civil War, moving to the U.S., and living through the August 2020 Beirut explosion, Barbara is no stranger to what is, for many, unimaginable hardship. But through it all, Barbara's love for Lebanon and food has pushed her to live in the moment, savor all that life has to offer, and connect with people from all over the world. Barbara sees food as a medium that can break barriers and tell stories, leading her to initiate soup for Syria and feed thousands of Syrian refugees. In her cookbook, each recipe comes with a story that embraces connection and shared humanity. But before we get into all that, let's travel back to 1970s Lebanon to a small mountain village surrounded by daisies where a young Barbara spent her childhood years. I'm from Lebanon. I had a great childhood. Uh, although a war broke out in the 1975 in Lebanon. But luckily, we were able to go to the mountains in a village called Balune. So I grew up there in the midst of uh, daisies and uh, cooking and um, friends. And it was a, it was a beautiful childhood. Yeah, it sounds like the idyllic childhood. Um, and I, 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 something, um, I am curious about you when like earlier, um, when we were getting set up, you asked me, uh, where does my, my name Donner come from? Um, and, and a little bit about like my family history. And I was wondering, like, is, was that something that, uh, you were made aware of when you were a kid? Like, did you know about where, you came from and where your grandparents came from and like the the familial history I definitely knew where I came from so both my grandparents from my mother and my father's side were born in Aleppo in Syria but originally they were from Lebanon a village called Abdin in the north and they had to to leave because of a massacre in a church, I was told. 
when people ask me, what are you? Where are you from? So I, I tell them I'm a makhluta. Makhluta is a word in Arabic that means mixed. We have a soup in, um, in Lebanon called makhluta, which is a mixed bean soup. So I'm French, I'm American, I'm uh, Armenian, I'm, uh, I have ancestry in, from Syria, so a little bit of everything. What did it feel like to have that mixture? Because I feel like having little parts of you located in all these areas allows you to tap into a lot of different parts of different cultures. So having so many identities it can be quite confusing for someone, uh, but... As you grow up and you learn and you travel and you see the world, it opens up many doors. She couldn't identify as just one thing, and that sued her. Multicultural identity, after all, has countless other benefits that extend beyond language or travel. Multiculturalism, or what's sometimes called as ethnic pluralism, is the acceptance and presence of many different cultures beyond one's culture of origin. It enables deeper connections, fostering a higher sense of tolerance towards those who are different. But being multicultural can also come with a lot of confusion, as Barbara mentions. Unlike having one distinct culture, someone like Barbara exists in a more nebulous space. And existing in so many different cultural frameworks can make one feel less connected to their culture of origin. But Barbara always found a way to hold on to her Lebanese heritage. I want to talk a little bit about your father, too, because during this time, surrounded by daisies, your father was a photographer, right? Yes. Uh, my father was a famous photographer during the 70s, and he used to do portraits of very important people like presidents, society women. His pictures of the King of Jordan when he was a little boy, he, he was quite famous. But when the war began in 75, uh, everything stopped. So far, the civil war has taken 17,000 lives. In the latest ceasefire, at least 50 and sometimes 100 people have died each day. Until last year, this corner of Beirut was crammed with clubs, bars and brothels. Instead, the streets shudder under shell fire and snipers pick off the unwary with a single bullet. How did that change your family and uh, where you would go? So the war of Lebanon, it started in 75. It started with uh, a bus that was uh, full of people that were, um, that were killed and it escalated into uh, rifts and fights. And we thought that it would last only for uh, maybe a few days, a few months. And then these few months became years. And then the war uh, continued for 15 to 17 years. So at a certain point, my parents wanted to, um, to leave. And um, we tried to live in France, but my father wasn't happy living in Paris. So we, we went to the States, to Florida, uh, because my aunt Sandra was living there with her husband, Salem. And uh, we started a new life there. What was life like over there? Going to, to the States... Um, I was 10 years old. Um, I didn't know how to speak English. I arrived. Um, they put me in a fourth grade class. I remember 
very well the day that I entered that class because I didn't know one word and everybody was talking to me and I would be like, yes, no, yes, no, and not knowing what they were saying. And then fifth grade, I was just like everybody else and I, and I did very well and I became an all-American kid. Yeah, no, I know. I, um, I I grew up for a little bit in Australia. It wasn't a new language, but I got the Australian accent really quick and I lost it really quick when I when I went back. I also want to talk a little bit about food too, because you mentioned that like you you had like cooking um, throughout your house with your grandparents when when you were in Lebanon, and you, you, you your family also opened up a Lebanese restaurant in '85. Um, so. Could you talk a little bit about that and what role food played in your life? So food for a Lebanese family, you could compare it to the Italians, you know, like we have breakfast and then we talk about what we're going to have for lunch. We're going to talk about what we're going to have for dinner. So it's very, very important part of our culture, of our heritage. And I think that food is a way to break barriers and to open up and to share stories so it was always about food. I mean, the, the subject, the main focus of our lives was, was always about food. And, you know, I was 15 years old when he opened the, his restaurant in Fort Lauderdale. Suddenly he said, we have a restaurant. And then he said, well, we're all going to work in the restaurant. And I was like, ah, oh, really? Okay, let's do it. Like, I used to be a very shy person. I didn't like to talk with adults. And um, waitressing, you just, like, learn. It's the best, best lesson of life. I learned about cooking. It, it was an amazing uh, experience. I think when you work in a restaurant, it, it goes into your bloodstream and it never comes out. The family restaurant gave Barbara the opportunity to push through her shyness with food serving as a way to break barriers and connect with people. When thinking about eating with others, you may think about a first date or a holiday dinner with a family. There's something unique about it. It could be a quiet meal or a loud one. There can be a sense of closeness or a sense of distance. But when it comes down to it, it's still bringing people together. According to behavioral scientists, when strangers or even enemies sit down and eat together, they're more likely to forge meaningful connections. Food serves as a sort of social icebreaker when making new relationships and first impressions, leading to a sense of trust between you and the other person. It's essential and something every race, religion, and culture has in common. Barbara, too, saw food as a gateway for storytelling, and that's something that would stick with her as she and her family prepared for another life-altering decision. Life in America is not easy. It can be the most amazing experience, but it can be also a very hard experience. My parents, at a certain point, they said, okay, we did this, done this, and we're going back to Lebanon. At that point in my life, it was a very difficult choice. My sister and I, we cried like so much. We arrived to Lebanon, it was in February. It was cold and it was dark and it was gray. 
And my father's like, in Lebanon, you can't go out. Women don't go out. I don't know what. He was like being strict. And we were like, what? Because this is, this is a different Lebanon than the Lebanon you left, right? Yeah, it was a cultural shock for us because we were, like I said, we became all American kids and teenagers and young adults. And then we come back and uh, the culture is very different here. The people are different, the way of living, the way of entertaining. When you live in a country and you go to another country, you have two different cultures and then you have to adapt to this culture. When I came back, I felt like I was a stranger because I, I, was, I was different. Did that difference ever become easier? And as you like entered into like university, how did you come to like terms with that like multiculturalness that you had? So when I went to a university, people in Lebanon are very hospitable, welcoming, and especially if you're a foreigner. So I had no difficulties and I adapted and I met my future husband. He kind of saved me and helped me see the way and explained to me everything. He would teach me uh, how to speak Arabic. He was like my life coach, my guide, and uh, that made things a lot easier. Though she'd eventually adapt to this new Lebanon, the transition wasn't easy. The culture shock she had felt when she arrived in America all those years before was now reverse. A place that was once familiar now felt unrecognizable. The freedom Barbara felt as a teenage girl in America vanished upon her arrival as post-war Lebanon left a negative impact on women. Women were discriminated against in the workplace, in politics, and in social culture. It was as though the world beneath her feet had suddenly shifted, and now she had to recalibrate her way of moving through the world. But while life in Lebanon was different, Barbara was no stranger to change. And once again, she found herself taking shape to the environment that claimed her. She was thriving, even when surrounded by hardship. In 1989... War broke out again in a war with Samir Jaja and Michel Aoun, who's now our president. And we had bombs falling in our neighborhood. When you live through a war, like, you won't believe, but there are positive effects. You never take life for granted. And you live day to day and you say, okay, what am I going to do with that day to make it a better day? Because maybe tomorrow something will happen. So like, you don't take life for granted. When I lived in the United States, I, I never felt like that. I didn't think about, okay, you think your life is, uh, you know, forever or you, you take things for granted. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week, next month, next year. So you seize the moment. You say, okay, I have this opportunity. I have to do it now because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So that's the positive side. The negative side is that you have a lot of anxiety and you always think about what's going to happen next. Barbara's right. In the States, we do take for granted the security and predictability of our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, there's the uncertainty that comes along with driving on a freeway or walking somewhere late at night, but bombs dropping in our neighborhood, that's not our reality. But it was the reality for those living in Lebanon. And while Barbara talks about how that uncertainty propelled her towards opportunity, the anxiety that came with living in a war zone was unavoidable. While the threat of violence and chaos was omnipresent, Barbara simply couldn't afford to be paralyzed by fear. She had no other choice but to keep moving forward and taking every chance she could 
because no one knew what tomorrow might bring. So I worked in an advertising agency. During that period, when lunchtime came, I would go in the little tiny kitchen and cook food for everyone and give out food to, to people working in their offices. Serge and I got married in 1995. I was working and then suddenly I was pregnant and then I had my first child, Albert. I delivered my child. I saw this like angel in front of me and I was like, oh my God, um, this is the most important thing in my life. I'm going to focus on this child and I'm going to give all my life to this child. We had one, two, three, and I stayed home <laughs> for seven years, uh, focusing only on these three little angels. And I loved every single moment of that time. Then Sarah, my youngest daughter, went to preschool. And then I felt like, oh my God, I have to do something with my life. I started thinking, what really makes me want to do and pursue something that really has meaning? I decided that I wanted to go back to the restaurant field because there is something that you live in a restaurant that you don't live anywhere else. It's the adrenaline that you have while you serve and I wanted to live that again. I asked around town and I asked people I wanted to do like a training. Training where? In any kind of restaurant. So you just went around people was like, hey, I just want to learn how to do this. Please, can I learn? Yes, yes. What did people say to you when you were just like going up to them? I know how to convince people. I, God <laughs> gave me this talent. <laughs> so I would go up and say, okay, I want to learn. And when I trained in the Lebanese restaurant, everything started to make sense. I said, ah, I'm Lebanese. I'm living in Lebanon. We have amazing food. I'm going to focus on Lebanese food. And this is what I did. So I stayed like a year and a half in a, a very famous Lebanese restaurant. There's a little uh, bakery inside the kitchen where I would stay and uh, speak with, uh, with the baker. And I would love and stay hours with that baker. His name was Muhammad. And I would ask him so many questions. And I felt that this is like something that really, really inspires me. And I, I would do it while, while I was home too, because you know, when you have three children, young children, and they frustrate you, you need to let out some steam. So I would go in the kitchen and I would make dough. Dough is like a baby that you, 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 you make, you put to, to sleep, and then it rises and then you cook it. So it's very maternal. And for me, it's like yoga, you know, it's a very soothing, uh, relaxing experience. Barbara chased the adrenaline and she caught it. The kitchen had become a place for a fast-paced learning environment, creation and exploration. And although she was away from her kids when she worked, those same maternal instincts followed her, allowing her to nurture the food she made and the people she served. But Barbara was unique for other reasons as well. Back in 2002, even though women made up 49.9% of the total Lebanese population, they only represented 22.5% of the total workforce. So while chefs at the restaurant were initially baffled by Barbara's presence, she wasn't going to budge. The kitchen, with all its smells and heat and clanking pans, was her home. She was a mother, and she was a chef. And despite the societal confines, she was never going to stop using food to connect with people. Definitely, food is about 
people. The best way to break any kind of barrier is the tool of using food. We have little bakeries all over Lebanon in every single neighborhood. So I went to the, the one next to my house and I said, I want to work here. I want to learn everything. And he started laughing. And um, now, okay, a woman like you, you want to come here? What is this? I said, yes, yes, I want to. Can you please let me in? He said, yes, okay. <laughs> he let me in. What? He let me in. <laughs> he let yes, you yes, in? Yes, Those yes, powers he let me of in. persuasion. <laughs> Yet again. <laughs> yeah, I think that helped a lot. And he had a very interesting story to tell. He ran away when he was 10 years old from his family in a village in the north. And we became very good friends. And he taught me so many things. He was like the base of my studies in that uh, topic. So photography has always been a part of my life. And I always loved taking pictures because photography is a way also of expressing yourself. It's very similar to, to, to cooking. It's an art form. I met a photographer who was working on his own book. So I went to him and I said, uh, I'm doing a book and I'd like you to help me because I need a professional photographer. So the guy, the photographer said, uh, no, I'm too busy. I have my own books. I have my own life. Uh, no, no, no. I said, okay. So I went home and then the next morning I went to his studio again and I said, when do we start? And he looked at me, <laughs> he looked at me, um, okay, we'll start. What? So... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I swear, you're like a, like a genie with these things, you're casting your spells. <laughs> I do not let anyone say no to me, that's my... That's uh, for sure. <laughs> yes, yes. We've started. I said, yalla, we'll go to the first bakery. We're going to start taking pictures. We're going to do this. So he started taking photos and I was like really picky. And I was like, okay, take this, this angle. I want this kind of contrast. I want this, I want this, I want that. He looked at me and he's like, you know what? You don't need me. You know exactly what you want. You're going to go and buy yourself a digital camera and you're going to do your own photos. He became like the brother I never had. So we became really close and we went all around the country and I visited 250 bakeries. 250 yes. bakeries? Yes, yes. That's how picky I am. Barbara wouldn't take no for an answer and she was able to visit 250 bakeries around the country because of it. She was persistent, not just in her pursuit of photography or her efforts to get hired, she was persistent in her desire to connect with people through food, to improve as a chef, and to be a person who united others over warm flatbread or sizzling meat. This was her art, and no amount of rejection would keep her from improving. Now, equipped with a photographer, Barbara was ready to take the Lebanese baking world by storm. So doing books, like people think, oh yeah, I'm doing a book, it's easy, you know. It's not, because you really, really had to delve into the subject. And I was like obsessed with the subject. Like we would drive and I was like, stop the car, stop the car. I see something. Okay, yalla, take a picture. Everything I saw for two years was based on something called the manushi and the people that, the bakers and the 
the photos I wanted to take and and I wanted to diversify the, the book. I wanted to have people from the Druze community, from the south, from the north, from Beirut. This was very good for me because I was able to, to, to visit different communities and learn about my country, the real Lebanon, all the people. And everybody gave me recipes. Everybody was so hospitable. It seems like the process to create this book is like just as valuable, if not more valuable than the end product. Like those experiences are, are, are things that you'll keep with you forever. Absolutely. And every book that I do, it's like that. I, I don't think about the business side because it, when you think about the business side of book selling and finishing, it's the journey, the people you meet, the food you taste, the experiences. You know, like I tell my children, I say, you know, I, I'm so rich. I'm not rich in, in dollars, but I'm rich in experiences. And that not everybody has. So I thank God for that. As Barbara collected stories from each baker on her path, she began to construct an intimate portrait of her homeland through food and photography. She was consumed by everything her country had to offer and was determined to capture the real Lebanon. As a former territory of the Ottoman Empire, Lebanon's borders were established as part of the Sykes-Picot Agreement in World War I. These borders were drawn by French and British diplomats with little regard for the cultural, ethnic, or religious affiliations of its people. This haphazard approach to nation building separated pre-existing communities like Druze and threw together literal warring factions. Barbara's book crossed all of these complex internal divisions by telling the story of Manouche, a common denominator throughout the distinct cultural groups in Lebanon and the Levantine region. By celebrating a bread that was just as popular in Tel Aviv as in Beirut, Barbara sent a message of culinary unity. So when her adventure finally came to an end and her book was finished, she could at last share that message of unity with the world. When I decided to do the Manushe book, we were with friends. I said, I'm going to do a book on the Manushe. And everybody started laughing like, okay, whatever, you know, crazy Barbara. And then I felt really bad. Like nobody believed in my idea. Nobody understood what I was going to do. And when the book came out, it, it became a huge success. The, the bookseller couldn't believe that the book sold so many copies. At the first book signing, we sold 350, 350 books. It went on to, to a second edition and then a third, and then my American publisher took it on and it's continuing. Your first book was released in 2005, correct? Yes. Why was 2006 an important year? 2006 was an important year because we had an Israeli invasion in our country for 30 days and we were bombarded and all the infrastructure of Lebanon was put down and it happened like, like we didn't expect anything to happen like this. It just happened from one day to another. It was very scary. Uh, my husband was on the road and there was a bomb that fell and a bridge fell right in front of him. We live through it. How, how do you stay? Because, you know, the, the, multiple times in your story, right, we're, we're, there, there's just been war and, and destruction and, and you're scared for your life. How, how do you stay? How do you stay when like all of that, like when 
when like your life like could be threatened when your when your husband literally saw a bridge fall and and get destroyed in front of them like how do you how, how can you stay in Lebanon like what keeps you there I guess it's part of our DNA because um once you live through a war uh you get used to it. I don't know. I mean, like now, for example, uh, with everything that's happening in Palestine and everything, like the threats that we have with Israel and Hezbollah and all this, and you know, like every day we live, we live like in fear of you know of 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 things starting all over again. Uh, there is such a thing as Lebanese resilience. The blast that we had lately in in uh, in August. Uh, nine months ago, uh, yani, I don't know of any country, I mean, that could live through that and then start over. Yesterday, I was I was in the neighborhood where the blast happened and and people are rebuilding and starting over and it's, it's really hard. I don't know. I don't know. How do you stay? Sometimes people don't have a choice. They have to stay. Some people are lucky that they have choices, but... Like, I have a choice. I could leave, but I, I don't want to leave. Like, now that I say to myself, I, I, I should leave, I must leave, and then I get more attached because I say, no, I don't want to leave. It was very hard. And that same year, we were invited to Italy to a, a slow food event called Terra Madre. This new world was filled with people who contributed to Barbara's unique philosophy on food. For those of you who don't know, Italian activist Carlo Petrini founded Slow Food International in an effort to preserve regional culinary traditions and make clean, healthy food accessible. This global movement takes a holistic view of food while acknowledging its deep connections to culture, politics, people, and our planet. This community welcomed Barbara, and after years of being surrounded by naysayers, she was finally embraced by a group of like-minded people. But while Barbara's career was reaching new heights, her country was once again being attacked. On July 16, 2006, Hezbollah captured two Israeli soldiers, and Lebanon was invaded and bombarded with thousands of airstrikes. The bombardment killed approximately 1,200 Lebanese people, mostly women and children, and displaced one million Lebanese civilians. But Barbara and her family survived. And as the Lebanese people had for many generations, they had no other choice but to keep moving forward. Lebanon was her home, and Barbara was determined to stay. So as the people of Beirut began to rebuild, she threw herself into her next book. I did my second book, Mune, which took me five years to do. I was doing like a segment on TV where I would go to villages and introduce people to different ingredients, different recipes. And then suddenly the war in Syria broke out. Fighting in a main district of Damascus has been reported between free Syria army rebels and forces loyal to President Bashar al-Assad. According to witnesses, the sound of heavy I'm not the kind of person that watches the news all the time and that like wants to know everything that is happening. But when I started seeing pictures on the news like of children uh, living in tents and uh, some of them were dying because of the cold, this is where I was like, oh, my, this is not happening. 
So when I saw that, I felt like, oh, I can't just live in my bubble and, and, and not do anything. So I decided to go up to the refugee camps. I took my camera with me and uh, I started taking photos and children would love it when I came because they love to have their pictures taken and it would become like a game. The portfolio of photos, so what, what do those photos look like? What, what, what were they? Were they of the children and like... They were portraits and living conditions of living in a refugee camp. Their tents uh, side by side and uh, mud all over and you have children barefoot in, in winter walking around. You have uh, people that have like, they throw plastic instead of wood to, to make a fire to heat themselves. So you have this terrible stench in the air and uh, voila, this is how I, I can portray it. But you have people when you come to them and you start talking to them. And I would discuss food because I know that food is something that we can talk about. And they would smile and they would say, yes, we used to eat this in Syria. We used to have this. I became friends with families and children. And it became like a weekly thing that I would do. And I, like I said, I wanted somebody to see these photos and to see what is happening because it was important for me to show that. So I said, okay, so I'm a cookbook writer. Let me do a cookbook and I'm going to show these pictures with a cookbook. Barbara wanted the most powerful leaders in the world to see what she was seeing, to feel the sense of urgency that these inhumane living conditions warranted. The violence, bombing, and chemical warfare that erupted in Syria had killed over 250,000 civilians by 2015, leaving 4 million Syrians no choice but to leave their homes in search of safety abroad. The Bika Valley, where Barbara visited, lies where the Syrian border meets Lebanon. Because of this, it quickly became the largest site for Syrian refugees in the world. Many of the camps built to accommodate these refugees have been hosted by the UN Refugee Agency. However, the UN bodies were only donating 60% of the funds that the UNHCR would have needed to create adequate living conditions for refugees. Barbara would be the last to accept this community's undeserved suffering. In the face of a problem that seemed insurmountable, Barbara tapped into what she knew best, what brought everyone she had met comfort and understanding, food and photography. I just posted on Facebook and I said, anyone who has a good recipe for soup can send it and I will, I will maybe publish it in a work that I'm doing. So I got over 200 recipes and very famous people like Alice Waters. I met Alice when, uh, through the Slow Food Network, um, Paula Wolford. Claudia Rodin, Anthony Bourdain, and people that you, you don't know about that are also very important, and others that are not, but had wonderful soup recipes. And the book was published in seven countries. Seven. Oh my God. Yes, yes. And it, it sold well, very well. What did that feel like for you? Yeah, because like you were trying to help like the Syrian refugee crisis. Yes. So I decided that I will not take any money and every single penny that came out of this would go to associations around the world that aid Syrian refugees during their, their time. 
Uh, and that's what happened. Like each country, each publisher decided where the money would go. And uh, yeah, I was published in US, the UK, Netherlands, Italy, Portugal, Turkey. Ah, Germany, the most important, Germany. They were translated in different languages. So now like I have seven books in my bookshelf with uh, different languages and different. It's really cool. And it was a success. Like something that I, I'm that that I'm just reflecting on hearing that it's like you just you saw images of children in distress, and then like the next thought was like, let me how how can I do something about that? And you actually did. Like you took action, and I feel like that's like I think that comes back to that maternal instinct again, like that 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 like guiding force that allows you to help so much. Um, and so now I kind of want to go to another story more recent, um, that I feel like embodies something similar. Um, I want to go to August 4th, 2020. So that August 4th, 2020, it was the big shock. I was in Beirut and uh, going back to the mountain. So I passed by the port, arrived to Balune, and my, my youngest daughter was there. We were having coffee, and uh, suddenly I hear... I hear it like very, and I recognized, I, I said, this is not, this is not, this is, like I, I started panicking and she's like, oh my God, my mom, like she never saw me like that. She didn't, I said, call Pepe, call Pepe, call me up, call me up, call Pepe. I can't, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I couldn't do it. During that uh, blast, so many other people lost houses, relatives, family members. We have friends that passed away. So it was like, it's, it's really, 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 really shocking. It's traumatic. Like yesterday, I, I was in the streets of Beirut where the blast happened and you can still feel the, the people, the, you, you still can feel everything. And then the next day, I spent the whole day at the, at the site where the blast happened. And I visited all the places because we used to have a restaurant. Like we, I partnered with some people who opened a restaurant two years ago. And I have so many people that I know that have restaurants or businesses. I, I would just walk around and see people and talk to them and people crying and people telling us their stories. I went into a building where there was like blood all over the stairs. And you know what happened? The weirdest thing happened. I went to, to our, our old restaurant and people bought it like six months before and it was completely devastated. And as soon as I entered the restaurant, I started crying. And I told them, you know, like my soul is still in this restaurant, even though we sold it and everything. We have so many memories. I can't believe this happened. I started crying like a baby. And uh, I have other friends like right next door. Their restaurant was totally, totally wiped out. Like you can't imagine. And you know who passed by that day? You won't imagine. Uh, the president of France, Macron. His car passed by Zimi. Zimi was our old uh, restaurant. And, and, and my son was working in Paris. 
and I and I started crying like a baby. I said, I can't. This is so surreal. Yani, uh, you have Macron in his car driving. Beirut is completely destroyed. I'm in front of the old restaurant where we used to work with my son. And uh, yani, too many emotions. It was too much. Living through the Lebanese civil war and visiting Syrian refugee camps, Barbara was no stranger to destruction and devastation. But there's only so much pain and suffering that someone can endure before it becomes too much. With the French president reminding Barbara of her son, she was flooded with memories of family, friendship and food that she owed to this old restaurant. The walls that stored her most cherished moments in life were torched and crumbling. Barbara and all of Beirut were grappling with an overwhelming loss that they were all absolutely helpless to. Caused by the improper storage of enormous amounts of ammonium nitrate, the explosion that hit the port of Beirut is estimated to equate to about one-tenth of the intensity of the nuclear bombs that wiped out Hiroshima in World War II. That's the strength of about 1,000 to 1,500 tons of TNT. This catastrophic blow would continue to disrupt Lebanon in more ways than one long after it had settled. How do you even move on from that? It's very hard. Like I've been living in Lebanon for 30 years. It's never been like that. We have a capital control. Like if you have money in the bank, you can't take it out. If you have dollars, you can't take it out. People have gone from middle class to, to poor so it's very, very frustrating because you feel like you're, you're hostage in this country. So you feel like you're suffocating. And there's uh, so many things going on every day. Like every day you wake up and there's something going on and some political. And we had the revolution. People from all communities uh, on the streets uh, saying that we want to change everything. We want to change uh, the way that the country is being run. We want... To, we want uh, corruption to be to be eradicated. We want to start over. We don't want feudal families to govern this country. We want the stolen money to go, to come back. We want to live with uh, respect, with dignity. We don't want this anymore. What kind of life is that? So yeah, it's a it's an emotional roller coaster. It's very hard. Where are you today, and and what like? So I'm doing a book. I called my publisher and I said, okay, after the blast, if I don't work on a project, I think I will go insane. I'm thinking of doing a book and I want to call it Beirut, something Beirut. And uh, immediately he said, yalla, do it. And that's what I've been doing, like doing a book on the 101 Lebanese cuisine. But it's not like the shiny cookbook that you see. It's not. There's a bit of, of a drama in it. There's a bit of like the, the, the photos that I that I chose, that I took. And they're not like those shiny, illustrative pictures that you take of food. No, they're like street art is important. Like uh, the streets. Like I took pictures of food on the street. I want it to be like that. You don't want it to be polished because that's the, the city isn't polished right now. No, no. I don't want it to be fake. I want it to be, voila, this is it. This is, this is Lebanon. This is it. Barbara is fully prepared to take her turn. Her cookbooks are trailblazing the world of advocacy as we know it. Most people are compelled and willing to help when they see others in crisis and will jump to making donations, posting photos, attending protests, and signing petitions. And this can do wonders for a cause. 
But Barbara is showing us an entirely different form of advocacy, one that reaches uncommon depths of personal intention. By contemplating how she can best utilize her unique gifts, communities, and resources, she is reaching her full potential to make an impact. My last question is just like, what are you looking towards for the future? What are you excited about, worried about? What are you thinking about as, as you look towards the future of, of what you are doing, of, of your country, of, of your children, uh, of everything? What are you, what are you looking towards? Uh, we, I cannot define looking towards anything because I don't see the future, the near future, very promising in my country. We're emotionally unstable. We live day to day, and that's the only way we can cope with the situation. And I think that each one uh, is living in his own bubble and tries to find therapy. So I find therapy in doing the books and uh, portraying Lebanon the way I want to portray it and romanticizing about the old times and through photography, through writing and through discussions, uh, whoever wants to listen. I don't know if Lebanon will ever get back on its feet. It has so many times. And by the way, I, I start my introduction in my new book, Did Beirut Ever Exist? And, and, and that, Nadia Twaini wrote that, and, and it's, I will read it to you. Yeah, could you, could you grab it? Uh, could you read it to me? So I will start with Nadia Twaini's words, Does Beirut still exist? Did Beirut ever exist? Since its birth, Beirut is in perpetual reconstruction and reinvents itself permanently. So this is where we are, and this is where we're going. That's my words. <laughs> Barbara has dedicated herself to this perpetual reconstruction, the ever-evolving present. As she had mentioned earlier, the fear and instability of life in a war-torn country reveals just how precious every minute is. In the West, many of us have had the privilege of procrastination. But Barbara knows the future isn't something that can always be relied on. Rather than waiting for others to intervene, she acts immediately to resolve what is at hand. Instead of daydreaming about what could become of her work, she gives her very best to the process. And while she engrosses herself in what is right in front of her, her dedication has created ripples that extend far beyond the present moment. Her only aim has been to pursue her passion, curiosity, and compassion. Yet, from this single mission, she has produced a series of inspiring cookbooks and thousands of dollars in aid for Syrian refugees. She's also stirred up a new force for good, another generation of Mossad creativity. Her daughter, a recent graduate in graphic design, is joining forces with Barbara for her new book, Forever Barut. So much has come from one person's efforts and gifts, and how wild it is to think that all of it stemmed from life's most simple staple, food. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez. Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, 
and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.